Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well. Plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, U.S. Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics U.S., brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. He was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? (laughs) Well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii. Okay. And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics US wherever you get your podcasts. one and all and welcome to family stories if there was an oscar night for podcasts this one would win the award for best original screenplay that's because you the listeners write our script for us this week your own family stories take us from an upturned boat in the mid-atlantic to a cold hiding place in a dutch forest we start this week with this tale from andrew gerard andrew writes Three men in my family were involved in the war. My father, George Gerard, was a soldier serving in the 1st Survey Regiment Royal Artillery. My uncle Robert was in the Merchant Navy, and my great-uncle, also called George Gerard, was a civilian. Ironically, my father had the easiest war. Although he was in the army for six years, he only spent eight months in an active combat zone and emerged without a scratch. My great-uncle was a manager in the Taiku shipyard in Hong Kong, and was interred in Stanley Camp from 1942 to 1945. The experience changed him forever. He was a big man weighing 18 and a half stone at the beginning of internment. When he was repatriated, he weighed less than seven and a half stone and had suffered a variety of illnesses. The story I am going to tell is that of my uncle Robert, 
Robert was first radio officer on the SS Harperley, which sailed from Milford Haven, bound for Buenos Aires on the 20th of April, 1943, as part of a convoy. On the night of the 4th of May, U-boats attacked the convoy, and the Harperley was struck by two torpedoes on the port side. Damage did not initially seem severe, but a heavy list developed, and the captain ordered them to abandon ship. Robert made it to a small boat, which then capsized. In his report, the captain later wrote, I pulled over to the small boat which had capsized in the heavy sea and found two men clinging to the bottom of it. It was impossible to go alongside as my boat had already been damaged whilst being lowered and I was afraid any further damage might cause it to sink. I told the men I would stand by until daylight. After being in the boats three and a half hours, HM Trawler Northern Spray came alongside and rescued us. I reported to the commanding officer that there were two men clinging to an upturned boat and he said he could see their red lights and was making his way towards them. He later informed me that when he was halfway to them, the lights disappeared and he could find neither trace of the men nor the boat. Now back to Andrew, who writes, The second account I have is contained in a letter written to my grandfather by G.K. Higgins, the second radio officer. When we were torpedoed, I ran up to the wireless cabin where I found Robert and the third operator. He had started to send out a distress message. When he finished, he and the third operator lowered a boat and got into it. I got into another one. By this time the ship was sinking rapidly, and in a few more minutes sank completely. I did not see Robert again for about four hours when our boat drew alongside his. By this time it had overturned as it was very rough, and Robert and the third were sitting astride it. The captain asked if they could hold on till daylight, which was in about an hour's time when he would be able to transfer them into our boat. He replied that they were quite comfortable and could do so. This was the last time I saw Robert. Our boat tried to keep as close to them as possible, but with a heavy sea running and our own boat full of men, we gradually drifted apart. A few hours later, we were picked up by a trawler. The captain immediately went to the skipper of the trawler and told him about the two men on the upturned boat and gave him the general direction. Only once did they see the red light on the boat, but when they headed that way, the light disappeared. They searched for about five more hours without luck, so they had to give up as we were a sitting target for submarines. This, I'm afraid, is all I can tell you, but if you've had no word from your son by now, he must be considered lost. Andrew writes, I will never know exactly what happened to my uncle. Most likely the boat sank and they drowned before they could be found. Such are the fortunes of war. Ten men were lost from a crew of 49, so if he had got in another boat or been taken on board by the captain when the boats met, he may well have survived. He has no grave but the sea, but his name is inscribed on the Merchant Navy War Memorial on Tower Hill, London. Kind regards, Andrew Gerrard. Peter McGrath has sent in our next family story. He writes, Dear Alan James, my aunt married a German in the 1970s and moved to Baden-Württemberg. Her father-in-law, called Opa, or Grandad by all, was a robust, tanned, affable man in his late fifties. The town where my aunt settled had an army barracks during the war. They'd intended to build it in the shape of a swastika, but it was only half finished. Still, half a swastika was a good aiming point. When the townsfolk got intel that the Americans were going to bomb them, they chose that most efficacious of anti-aircraft tactics. They went on a pilgrimage 
and prayed to the Blessed Virgin Mary to spare the town. On the day of the raid, a thunderstorm over the town diverted the bombers elsewhere. This is where Opa came from, Catholic South Germany. We visited our aunt and German in-laws often. I liked Opa, even though his English was as poor as my German. I guessed from his age he must have been in the German forces in the Second World War, but it was never spoken about. One night, when I was about 14, he cracked open the homebrew schnapps, poured me a drink, and, with my uncle translating, told me how he had run across France behind a panzer in 1940. When he arrived at the French coast, he stared at England for a while before he was put on a train and sent to Russia. In Russia, he was walking along a lane with his best friend beside him. He heard a crack of a passing bullet. His friend walked for a few paces before collapsing dead, shot through the head by a sniper. Opa was promoted to sergeant and led a reconnaissance unit. He was the last man on a night patrol through snowy woods where he couldn't even hear his own footfall. The patrol was moving, crouched beside a line of scrubby hedge. Opa straightened to look over the hedge. Two metres away stood his Red Army counterpart. They stared at each other, knowing what would happen if either shouted or drew a weapon. Both shook their heads and the patrols went on their way. Obviously that was an exception. One day his patrol was attacked, outnumbered and surrounded. They were taking casualties and it looked bad. Now remember they came from Catholic South Germany. Under fire they prayed to the Blessed Virgin Mary. Oprah promised that if he survived he would name his first daughter Mary. Then they made a charge and burst through the Russian lines. Opa survived. He ended up at Stalingrad and was on one of the last Junkers 52s out of there before the Sikh army was encircled and captured. He made it home, married and named his first daughter Mary. After he told me his story, Opa took me outside to a barn. He picked up a Hessian sack. It had the Gothic script and the Eagle Nazi logo on it. The Nazis had requisitioned the family farm while he was away fighting. In halting English he said, this cannot happen again. I only knew him as Oprah-in-law, and a kinder man you could not wish to meet. He went to his grave with shrapnel in his body, and the trauma of being a Wehrmacht conscript buried deep. A good man caught up in an awful time. Yours, Peter McGrath. <laughs> The next story comes from We Have Ways listener Alex Aitchison. Dear Al and James, I am a long-time listener and a big fan of the podcast and would like to share with you the remarkable story of my partner Rianne's family and their lives in the occupied Netherlands. It is an absolutely amazing story that Rianne and her family are proud to be able to share with you. We have taken it from a local newspaper article about the events and also the written testimony of her grandfather, Volkert, the Haider family lived on the family farm in Katliek, Friesland, in the north of the Netherlands. On the afternoon of the 7th of May 1944, the crew of a badly damaged American bomber bailed out in the skies above the village of Nyalama. One landed at the village waterworks and two more landed in a peat field on the outskirts of the village. The crew were quickly discovered by the locals and brought to the village where they were reunited. It is now that Rianne's grandfather, Folkert, who was 19, and his 17-year-old brother, Jakob, arrived at the scene having witnessed the burning bomber flying overhead. The NSKK, a Nazi paramilitary organisation, were based some five and a half miles away at the Hotel Tjada 
in the village of Oranjewood. Jakob understood that the Nazi station there would already be on their way and if the airmen wanted to survive, he would have to hide them. He was the only one who could speak English, so he told the airmen to go with him and took them back to the waterworks where one of the crew had landed. Here the crew could eat and rest while Jakob and his friend Bertus Hartkamp could locate Jakob's father, Reichela Heide, at the church and seek his advice. Reichela told them to go home, fetch civilian clothes for the airmen and take them to the Yellow Forest. When they arrived back at the waterworks, another local, Jan Vischer, had arrived and instructed them that he knew of a place in the forest, a hole in the ground that would be a perfect location for the airmen to hide in. After the airmen changed clothes, they and Jakob made their way to the forest, staying low, crawling in ditches and walking where they could. They rendezvoused with Vischer and hid the airmen in the hole which they covered with branches. Jakob told the airmen to stay put and he would pick them up during the night. Not thirty minutes later, the area was surrounded by soldiers who did a search of the forest. They were unable to find anything, and growing increasingly suspicious, they stationed lookouts by the waterworks, the bridge, and the roads in and out of town. That evening, the Haider family and the pump house operator, Van der Bosch, met at the family farm to formulate an escape plan. They decided that it was not possible to get the airmen over the bridge at night as it was heavily guarded. Van der Bosch, however, had a permit which allowed him to cross the bridge to get to the waterworks and this would turn out to be a critical part of the escape plan. They decided that Jakob and his brother, Yeep, would head down to the banks of the River Tionga at ten that night. Meanwhile, Van der Bosch crossed the bridge using his work pass. He then borrowed the boat, owned by the Provincial Water Management Company, and pushed it to the opposite bank of the river so that Jakob and Yip could be pulled across. After the boys had safely crossed the Tionga, they made their way back to the forest while Van der Bosch stayed on lookout. The soldiers were still at their posts at the Yellow Forest, so Jakob crawled between them and made his way to where he thought the airmen were hidden. It took hours of searching until he finally located the hiding place, and the three now cold and very stiff airmen were happy to see Jakob again. Jakob and Yeep reunited near the guard posts where the brothers and the airmen had to sneak past the guards. They crossed a nearby drainage ditch by hanging upside down under planks of wood and slowly pulling themselves along. One of the airmen, still stiff from spending a day crammed in a small hole in the forest, lost his grip and dropped into the water. Luckily, this went undetected and they were able to get past the guard posts. By this time, the boys were running late and Van der Bosch had been lying in the field on watch for over two hours. Finally, he saw some figures appear over the horizon. It was the boys and three airmen. Everyone made their way to the boats where the two Frisian farm boys, the pump house operator and the three airmen attempted to cross the river. The sky was clear and the moon was unusually bright that night and as the crossing was made only 500 metres from the east of the guarded bridge, they could easily have been seen. Thankfully, all parties made it safely to the other side. Van der Bosch went home, but the boys and the airmen still had some distance to go through open fields before they could reach the Haider family farm. As the night was clear, the German lookouts could see over a kilometre, so the boys and airmen crawled the remaining distance back to the farm. They hid the airmen in a hiding place, complete with a small kitchen, in the woodland behind their home which they'd built in case of emergencies. By the time the boys had made it back to the farm with the airmen, it was almost 3am, so they brought the men clean clothes and food and went off to bed. The next day, the pilot, who had fallen into the drainage ditch, 
had come down with a fever and it was clear he needed medication. Van der Bosch, the pump house operator, instructed his son to go and see the doctor and pick up the medication. The doctor gave it to him straight away. He knew who it was for, as the day before his wife had ended up with some laundry, the American kind, that she could not hang outside with the rest. Around this time, the Germans realised that the boat from the water management company had moved to the opposite side of the river. Knowing they had been made fools of, they began house-to-house searches all around the outlying villages but did not find anything. Meanwhile, with the American airmen hiding behind the family home, the boy's father, Rikela, made contact with a resistance member in Heerenveen, L. Koopman. After explaining the situation, Rikela was told someone would come to the farm to arrange everything, but he must keep his mouth shut in the meantime. He was told this person would use a code. I am a friend of the acquaintance from the master of Yarp. The next evening, the former police chief of Herenfeen, called Kuiper, came over to the Haider family. They chatted a bit, and then Kuiper said, You pulled it off. Haider said, I don't know what you're talking about. Kuiper responded, I am a friend of the acquaintance from the master of Yarp. They went to a quiet place and discussed the plan. People from the resistance would come by car in police uniform that Wednesday to pick up the airmen at an agreed location. L. Koopman would be one of the fake police officers. When the time came, Jakob took the airmen to the agreed location. When the airmen saw the police officers, they were surprised and told Jakob that he was handing them over to the Germans. Jakob explained this was not the case and the airmen had to trust him that these were the good guys. It was still risky. If the Germans were to stop the fake police officers then it would all be over. They would have to pretend that they were going to hand the airmen in. But this did not happen. The airmen safely arrived at the hiding location and the resistance later helped them get back to England and survive the war. This was not the end for the Hyder family. Shortly after this, the older boys in the Hyder family, including Rianne's grandfather, went into hiding and were moved around several different resistance households. Later that year, in December of 1944, the sound of gunshots echoed out from behind the family farm followed closely by the neighbour running for his life. One of the younger sons, who was not in hiding, got caught up in this and also started running with the Germans in hot pursuit and managed to hide in the butcher's house. When the Germans couldn't find them, they searched the family farm and uncovered the hiding place the family had built, the same place where the airmen had stayed. Rikala, the father, was not home at the time, so the Germans questioned his wife Annika about the hiding place. She refused to tell them anything, so they put a gun to her head and threatened to kill her, but still she kept her silence. They didn't kill her, but instead told her to tell her husband to report to the police station by 3pm that day, or they would burn down the farm. Later that day, Rikela reported in. He told them that the hiding place was merely a place the children had made to play in, but they didn't believe him. They imprisoned him, accusing him of hiding the American airmen, and talking to the resistance. During his captivity, He had an extremely hard time and was beaten badly and tortured by his captors. They also tried to press-gang his sons into service by offering to release him on the condition that his sons would report to duty. His sons, who were already in hiding, never reported in and were branded as terrorists. Rikala was released after seven weeks as they had no evidence against him. He had to pay 1,250 guilders to secure his release. Rianne's grandfather Folkert and his brothers Jacob and Yeep remained in hiding until the liberation of the Netherlands in 1945. 
It all had a happy ending. The Haida family survived the war and even received a letter of thanks from the then commanding general of the United States Fortress European Theatre and future US President Dwight D. Eisenhower. I've enclosed a picture of this letter and a crew picture of the American airman. A few years after the war, Jakob Haida moved to the United States, where he reunited with one of the airmen who he'd saved from capture. Sadly, all of the brothers mentioned have now passed away. But after hearing their remarkable story from Rianne and her family, I knew I had to share it with you. We hope you enjoy this story as much as we do. Kind regards, Alex Aitchison and Rianne Hyder. Thanks, Alex. And look on Twitter, where we've posted the letter and photograph he mentioned. This story comes from Oliver Clixby. He writes, Dear James and Al, attention, attention, and a shout out for all the Anglo-Argentines, including my recently passed grandma, who came over to do their bit for the mother country during the war. Knowing your international outlook, I thought you might find a little interest in the Anglo-Argentine experience. Thank you for the podcast. I've dipped in before, but being able to binge from the very start has been a real help at the moment. More importantly, you have finally convinced my mate that it wasn't just about American money and Russian blood. P.S. Al, I'm in my 20s and I still use email. This is the story of my grandma Billy, who was born and raised on a farm in Patagonia in a community that had never quite abandoned the Victorian era. She escaped in early spring 1944 by persuading her parents that she had to do her bit and go to Britain to become a nurse. Arriving at Buenos Aires Harbour at low tide, Billy gazed down over the red-dusted ship that would carry her to England below. On the deck, a young third officer smiled up at her and said, I'll take you dancing tonight. Oh, no, you won't, she replied. The crossing was long. They zigzagged the full width of the Atlantic, almost touching West Africa and the West Indies to avoid the tail end of the U-boat menace. Once Billy got to England, she walked out with airmen from the Pathfinder station where her sister was based and went on motorbike rides with tankers when they had a weekend pass from Bobbington. On VE day, Billy was standing on a pillbox when a black saloon came pushing through the crowd. As it came past, she saw Churchill inside. He looked up at her and gave her his V for victory salute. A few months later, Billy arranged to have passage on the ship of that same young officer who had invited her out for a night in the tango halls. Back at Buenos Aires, she was met at the ship by her mother and younger brother. Billy could see a stranger sitting in the back of the car her mother had arrived in. Who's that mummy? she asked. Your new chaperone, darling, her mother replied. In that case, I'm going back to England, Billy said. Steward, take my luggage back to my cabin. A blazing row took place on the single plank gangway, which bounced up and down like a trampoline. Billy's brother would later say he thought he was going to be thrown into the sea. The stewards, not knowing what to do, asked the young officer for a command decision. He informed them that, Miss Naylor is the passenger, you do as she says. Take that luggage back to her cabin. That young officer was my grandfather. My great-grandmother never forgave him, but Billy's brother and father welcomed him with open arms every time the ship landed in Argentina. They had great respect for the courage of the man who defied my great-grandmother. He had good practice at being courageous, having been sunk on both sides during the war, twice by U-boats and once by a British mine as his ship was coming into Liverpool. Best wishes, Oliver Clixby. (laughs) 
Finally, another story from the Merchant Navy which comes from Ben Ross. Ben writes, I thought I'd share this letter with the group. It's from my great-uncle George to my grandmother. Apparently they were very close. George was in the Merchant Navy and was third engineering officer on the MV Port Gisborne. They were returning to the UK from New Zealand, bringing with them a cargo of wool. George wrote a few days before arriving at the Panama Canal. It gives a snapshot of life away at sea in the Merchant Navy and a glimpse of Uncle George. The letter is dated 14th September 1940 and reads Dear Pansy, A few lines to let you know that we are still getting along all right and that apart from the news we get, we wouldn't know there was a war on. I bet you can't say the same. For if you're still down in Bristol, you will certainly have used the air raid shelter in the backyard. And I hope that is all it has come to. We stayed in Auckland just a week, and in that time I went up to see the Unsworths twice, and I'm sure they appreciated it much more than if I'd gone every night. They sent me off with a couple of parcels to post when we get back to a couple of lads in the New Zealand forces in England, but to make up they gave me a large box of biscuits and a huge lump of cream cake. Although I didn't like taking the biscuits... I took them just the same. Everything is going on here, just the same as usual, and we are back to the usual routine of watches, four on, eight off. But as we don't count the days as being the same as the next, it is amazing how the days drift by. We expect to be at the canal in a few days' time, and as we may only stop for bunkers, all the letters will have to be written beforehand to go ashore with the agent. It's possible that we may be there for a few days as the frame on the bow of the ship carried away a few days ago, and as it is used for the paravanes, it is almost certain to be repaired somewhere before getting back. If we do, I expect we shall be seeing a bit of nightlife ashore, and as I still have a few English pounds for emergencies, I shall be all right. We've been in the tropics now for about five days, and should be crossing the line in a few more, but the weather instead of being hot is almost the opposite with the seawater being only 70 Fahrenheit. I'm still wearing the good old standby, that being the pullover. As it was expected, owing to the war, we haven't received as much mail as usual, and up to the present time, I have had only one letter from Mother, and that only just before we left Wellington homeward bound. But, as it had been sent on from the office in Sydney, I did well to get that. With a bit of luck, I may get something at Panama, for I know a cable was sent home with instructions to write to Panama, but unless you're at home at the time, it would be too late when you would get to know. Well, I'm afraid this is about all for the present time so that hoping you're all as safe as I am at the moment. I'll finish. Remember me to Jack and give my love to Judith. Hope to be seeing you before long. Yours, with love. Sadly, my grandmother received the letter after the news had come through that George had been killed. After leaving the Panama Canal, the Port Gisborne joined convoy HX-77. They're about 113 miles west of Rockall, when at 2209... They were hit by a torpedo from the U-48. 26 of the 64 crew were killed, George being one of them. The crew abandoned ship in three lifeboats, one capsized in gale-force conditions and the occupants drowned. The other two boats were adrift in the Atlantic for over 11 days. One was picked up on the 22nd of October 1940 by HMS Salvonia and the other on the 24th by another merchantman. The captain, Thomas Kipling, took charge of one boat and won an OBE for his efforts, while able seaman Sidney Herbert took charge of the second boat and won a George medal. George and the men of the Port Gisborne are listed on panel 83 of the Tower Hill Memorial, along with 36,000 others.
he has now passed from living memory. This letter, and two others like it, and a couple of photos, are all that's left. He met an appalling anonymous watery end. It's nice he can be remembered here. Thank you. Ben Ross That's all for today. If that last one shook you like it did us, we entirely understand. If you've got a family story you'd like to be considered for the show, please email it to wehavewayspodcast at gmail.com or leave it on the member's site under the Family Stories tab. A reminder, that's patreon.com slash wehaveways. Bye for now.